Hey, and thanks for joining us again for another episode of Dose of Ether. Before we get started, I would like to thank our sponsors this week, Trail of Bits. Trail of Bits is an established cybersecurity consultancy that has branched out into Web3 technology. They work with well-known projects in both the Ethereum and Bitcoin community. By automating and open sourcing the tools that they've developed through their client work, they've helped the community and matched its ethos. This week, we are highlighting the Empire Hacking mini-conference that is focusing on Ethereum and security. These talks are technical and in-depth. For example, Ian Meyer's talk is basically an if-I-did-it-this-is-how-I-would-have-done-it guide to breaking the security models of some privacy coins. I've always found the security implications of blockchain fascinating because you have so much at risk on the line in your code and that's why talks like these that keep me up to date on best practices, new tooling, new ways to look at things um, is always welcome and I hope you like it too. Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Ether is the perfect drug for Las Vegas. In this town they love a drunk. Fresh meat. Come on, buddy. So they put us through the turnstiles and turned us loose inside. progress for that and and when we're going to see the first release hopefully uh we're going to talk a little bit about moloch dao which is really exciting and um, whether we should be moving to prog pow for fixing some of the issues with asics and a little bit about uh, xdai which is a really exciting project that i'm looking forward to chatting uh, about so lucian welcome uh I, i really enjoyed your interview on the last episode uh uh how, how are you doing? Hey, Vijan. Uh, good to talk to you again. Yeah, it's interesting. That was uh, basically the first interview that I've done. You've done a couple, um, even done some interviews at conferences. But yeah, interviewing is uh, definitely interesting, different. Um, <laughs> and we're back to the usual format of our show in which we basically catch each other up on the massive amount of information passing through the Ethereum ecosystem. And it seems like every time that we bring up talking points, we've heard completely different things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's as if um, like our so... filter bubbles are a little bit different. And the yeah. news that passes and gets to us is... Uh, it, it's dramatically different, um, despite our interests being fairly aligned. Yeah, I think uh, you've always taken much more of like the the technical approach and thinking about it that way. Whereas, like, I'm really interested in the the economics and the the, the business side of things. Although, I think we're both interested in both sides. So, mm-hmm. um, looking forward to getting into it. So, um, the latest on the proof of stake and beacon chain for. Ethereum 2.0, it seems seems like there's a lot of progress being made there, huh? Yeah. So um, recently, there have been some announcements of test networks that are ready. And before I go into further detail, I have to explain basically the three phases of ETH 2.0. Um, and the article and the source will be linked in the description. But basically, phase zero is explained as the beacon chain and a proof-of-stake chain. And um, this is expected to be out earliest at the end of 2019. However, there are test nets that are actually live right now, um, which is very interesting. And the status put out a project called Nimbus, which is their... Um, Ethereum 2.0 implementation and it's ready um, and it allows people to join and Prismatic Labs also is approaching the point in which they are ready to start up their test network as well and the interesting thing is that um, Prismatic Labs is already asking people to stake testnet ether um, on the new uh, Curly or 
I can't pronounce it, it's German, but <laughs> the new uh, Ethereum testnet, if you stake wow. some uh, testnet Ether on it, um, then you can essentially establish a validator node um, using the new Prismatic client that they've set up. And this is all moving really fast because the specification has only really uh, started being put in place about nine months ago. And the progress being made is uh, it's quite phenomenal. But yeah, yeah my, my understanding is that it's changed a lot in these teams. We've had we've had like seven plus teams that are working on uh, building out their own variation of or, or their own implementation of Ethereum 2.0 and the spec is constantly changing. So it sounds like they're going to be finalizing at least the, the first phase of this here pretty soon. And, and phase zero, I think, has been finalized, but super exciting. <clears throat> yeah, me. I think there's uh, nine implementation teams currently on Ethereum 2.0. And and yeah. so it's a little bit of a moving target for developers, isn't that right? So they've, um, at least for phase zero, specifically the spec for the beacon chain and the proof of stake um, chain as well, basically they have a, a goal um, and a shared vision of how it's being implemented. So... The fact that these teams can work in parallel and eventually will work to make their testnet cross-client, um, which is really interesting and important to um, to note as well. So, if someone, let's say, let's take uh, Geth, which is the Go implementation of Ethereum, and Parity, which is the Rust implementation. Um, if you take uh, both of these. And previously, their test networks didn't actually work together because their test networks were run on proof of authority test networks, but there were also there was also a cross client proof of work test network that um, that was running as well. But basically, you have these client implementations, and if even if your software works and it plays nicely with your own client implementation, you could have made some kind of implementation error that would simply just not be noticed because it's only your client talking to your client. And if you have multiple client implementations, you have the possibility of finding faults in um, specific implementations by it not playing nicely with other implementations. Gotcha. So yeah, and the, and whenever there's a single um, build or single platform that that uh, the client has been developed on, then um, you get this issue, right, where everybody's building on the same um, kind of client implementation, and uh, you can have some issues with that and bugs that crop up that that you don't see until you're in production. So yeah, having many different implementations across different programming languages that are all kind of moving toward the same specification gets you a lot of developers trying to, to build and, and interact with each other's apps. And you can see where the, um, the failure is in those client implementations where you wouldn't see it necessarily otherwise. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yes. And, um, the, a really good example of this, um, is Zcash. So Zcash recently contracted Parity in order to build another client implementation of their uh, Zcash 2.0 sapling release that they just released um, at the end of last year. And this was the, their argument that, that if there's only one development team um, putting out one client, then the actual resilience of the distributed system um, is entirely dependent on the proper implementation of one code base. And there you could already see the problem. It's that if uh, everyone upgrades and they don't notice a problem with the, the node and the client software, you can actually take the entire network offline or worse. You could actually corrupt the chain data and then you have this problem of how do you actually resolve with your community if they can't agree on what the actual chain data is? Um, wow. So Ethereum's in a really interesting and fairly unique position because um, even Bitcoin has one official um, client implementation. Parity has a 
Bitcoin implementation, but I don't know if it is used. It's definitely not an official recognized client implementation. From what I understood, Parity implemented it just to understand Bitcoin better. Um, wow. And, and yeah, and Ethereum has such a strong development community that, and, and uh, so many applications and businesses and projects that rely on it that you, you would expect that, you know, rather than everybody who, who's using Bitcoin is kind of, um, you know, they're, they're not really building on top of it. They're building web applications that leverage it for, let's say, currency trading. But with Ethereum, it's mission critical for these businesses to, to actually develop with the platform. And so having multiple implementations is kind of like a security guarantee for these businesses that are relying on it for, for their future. Yeah, exactly. And having different client implementations also allows for different use cases. So Status has this really challenging mission of uh, being the um, light client implementation of Ether. And um, that's really difficult because of the amount of network traffic required to synchronize a node um, on a mobile phone which is Status's entire intention. So they used a programming language that is uh, well-known for resource optimization. Um, they use a programming language I've never heard of before called NIM, and they are basically using... They basically created a very uh, niche implementation um, for their own specific needs. And... Um, there are, it's the same thing with like the Go implementation. The Go implementation um, is basically because the developers who started the team, a lot of them are ex-employees uh, at Google. And Google being like the programming language that they were most comfortable and confident with, um, I assume that definitely helped <laughs> in their choice. Not to say that everyone who programs in Go works worked for Google, <laughs> but um, the having different client implementations allows for different types of use cases. But what it really does is adds to the resilience of the entire ecosystem because um, there have been actually a lot more client implementations of Ethereum than most people know about. The first one was a C++ implementation, which I don't think is maintained anymore. Or if it is, it changed from what it used to be. Um, there was also a, a Java implementation. And the only reason that I found out about this was because uh, Tron copied parts of it and right. ironically, it was uh, an Ethereum implementation that was no longer supported or maintained. Um, so <laughs> yeah, and then Tron, Tron kind of piggybacked off that and and uh, and got it got a lot of notoriety, and then kind of moved into their own uh, yeah their own brand, and and is seeming to sustain just fine. But back to uh, Ethereum and the the two project. Yeah. So we have the phase zero, which is going to actually enable proof of stake. Um, mm-hmm. or, or, or is it phase, and, that, and that's meant to be in Q4. Um, so people are gonna be able to start moving their Ethereum into uh, a, a proof of stake model and start generating additional income on it. Isn't that right? So I don't think people will yet with Ethereum because the phase it's three phases phase zero um being proof of stake but that doesn't necessarily mean that the rest of the layers are built yet because phase one is a shared data layer and here we're basically facing some the main problem that needs to be resolved is peer-to-peer uh network engineering challenges and seeing how you could potentially have up to a thousand blockchains running in parallel, the type of communication and networking challenges that are faced are pretty big. <laughs> and it will be very yeah, difficult to have um, any, any 
single node that it has the capability of receiving all of the network traffic required to uh, maintain a full vision and scope of uh, the full network. So that brings phase two, which is the sharded state and execution layer. Because at phase two, then you don't need all of the information. And mm. um, then you can have clients that see the part of state that is most relevant to them. And I don't think that the proof of stake mechanism will um, actually take over until the full implementation of sharding um, and the uh, data transmission layer, the shared data layers actually implemented as well. So I don't think that deposits will start happening until um, all three phases are complete. And um, I've heard discussions on how exactly this process will work, on how people transition their Ether into ETH 2.0. Um, the It's basically going to be like a deposit into a smart contract that could either be one way or two way um, from what I understood. And then essentially, like once you have deposited enough, then you can start becoming a validator within like the next chain. There's a lot of nuance uh, onto how this works. Like, how do you keep all of the old chain data? And yeah, and yeah, a lot of these questions are still unresolved. So I assume that you won't be able to actually stake your tokens until all three phases are done, um, mainly because you need a fully functioning um, system in order to be able to start locking up value. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, it's it's good that they're obviously taking a phased approach, and they're they're moving on development very quickly, and and trying to validate that the, these pieces work along the way, rather than um, just trying to build it all and release it all at once. So mm -hmm. um, at least that's good. You know, it sounds like though not a lot of value to the community will be un unlocked until um, until the whole thing is is done, or or at least we're we're pretty close to that stage so uh and you know we'll continue following this you know i know that vitalik's overall strategy and and you know he's just one uh he's just one participant in this whole ecosystem but how he sees it is that uh generally they they want to build ethereum 2.0 do it as quickly as they can so that they remain competitive and retain developers um not move into an on-chain governance system like like Tezos and other platforms have have done um, to get to a stable layer one and and then they're going to have uh, uh, more of their innovation on the second layer with state channels and and other other such approaches that that multiply the uh, the transaction volume that you can have um, even on this this really solid layer one. Um, and then move Ethereum pretty much to a slow, steady pace and, and maintain stability. And um, that would give it a, a very strong position where people feel like, hey, um, Ethereum is, is not moving so quickly. So the, the risks involved with uh, bugs and so on are, are minimized while it's really functional. Whereas Bitcoin is moving very slowly. I think it's still, you know, it took so long for Lightning Network to launch um, and, and other things, but it's been very, very stable over time. So, you know, it's still a risky period for Ethereum while, while uh, this development on Ethereum 2.0 is going on. And of course, a lot of challenges have to be overcome before uh, they can prove that they can get to a proof of stake system that is highly scalable and, and also very secure and, and stable. Yeah, and uh, ideally they would only start taking deposits once they have that kind of validation and proof. Um, so yeah, I mean, if, if is, somebody wants to yeah. take a risk, then, then <laughs> let them do it. But uh, If the reward yeah, is uh, proportional in order to compensate for said risk. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, does it does require utility on the chain. Um, but I know exactly what you mean. Um, there is not a lot i mean except for the learning opportunities for the developers <laughs> uh myself included just watching this progress it just uh, requires me to learn and expand my horizons just 
to keep up and understand what some of the motivations are. Um, for example, a, a recent announcement was regarding like why they chose SHA-256. And um, currently, Ethereum uses the Kekak um, hashing algorithm. And like there is a really minor padding difference like something that is relatively insignificant and I'm not even we're not even, I don't think it's known why this recommendation or change was to be made but basically the algorithm that Ethereum is using was the winner of the competition that was entered into the NIST standard but mm. once it was selected as the winner this minor change in how like zeros are added on for padding was made. So technically the hashing algorithm <laughs> that Ethereum uses is not NIST compliant. And now they're switching over to SHA-256 and there's um, some additional cryptographic research that, and advancements that have... Uh, that have been made and this kind of allows them to take advantage of other people's research and it's really fascinating because they have very high level academics um for example if anyone has taken the coursera cryptography course um i'm gonna butcher his name so I won't say it. <laughs> but basically that professor um is responding to uh, questions from the Ethereum research team on helping them select what their next hashing algorithm will be. And mm. um, it's specifically related to uh, BLS signatures, which is like a way to aggregate cryptographic signatures. And it's something that Zcash has recently implemented in their sapling approach. And like all of these things you kind of just pick up just by learning and putting your ear to the ground on uh, what's happening with the uh, research progress and seeing how these uh, decisions are being made. It's really interesting and something that I would never be able to experience if, for example, all of this was ready and it was served to me on a platter and it was ready for my consumption because I would never need to know it. But in having to like go through this uh, learning process along with the development, it kind of understand. I kind of understand the reasoning behind why certain decisions were made. Yeah, and it, it leaves them very adaptable, right? So, um, as new research around zk snarks, zero knowledge proofs, and all all of this, you, like you're saying, BLS signatures and all all this cool stuff that's happening in cryptography that's happening at such a fast pace. If they lock in, if Ethereum in the community locks in the specification too early. They might be at a disadvantage relative to groups that are are speedy are, are able to incorporate these new advancements um, yeah. while while um, the Ethereum specification is locked. So uh, it's good that they're staying open, but it does sound like they're um, finalizing some of the early phases now, and uh, development is obviously been moving very quickly. And so uh, excited to see how this how this pans out into into 2019. Um, yeah. Now, with moving moving on to um, some some of the advancements uh, on the just the, the the regular chain or the the the, the, the chain that we have today, Ethereum one point um, There's a lot of talk about move, uh, changes there, and one of them is um, ProgPow, right? This this solution to the problem of ASICs and these these custom uh, uh, graphics cards or, or, or not graphic, but these custom, um, uh, devices that will, uh, produce Ethereum, uh, with a proof of work algorithm in a highly efficient way. And the community is talking about whether to brick and, and destroy effectively all of these custom ASIC, uh, chips that, that are designed to, um, to get as much Ethereum out of the system as possible. What do you, what do you think about this? So um, Ethereum already created a specific type of algorithm. Um, Bitcoin is pretty 
um, famous for essentially taking um, the SHA-256 algorithm and doing it repeatedly until there's a certain leading number of zeros in front of it. And this is the basis of proof of work. And because the of the rigidity of their community to stick with the same hashing algorithm, this has allowed uh, certain chip manufacturers to specialize in the production of um, computer chips that do nothing else. Well, the problem with allowing specialized chip manufacturers to um, develop a massive advantage uh, on the scale of like an exponential improvement over everyone else's ability to mine has meant that the concentration of mining has become highly correlated with um, access to the computational hardware and the manufacturers of these ASICs chips. And Ethereum didn't want that. First of all, it's pretty much a bad idea to use the same type of infrastructure as another leading chain. And we can take the Ethereum Classic example into account. So if you were to take a small fraction of Ethereum's mainnet um, hashing capability currently and direct it towards something like Ethereum Classic, then what you can do is you can effectively double spend. Four. Yeah, you can do a 51% attack. You can essentially overwhelm the um, baseline hash rate that happens on a smaller chain um, if you're able to move over this um, a, a small piece of a larger chain's hash power over. Uh, and given that they're using the same algorithm, those those ASICs or, or that specialized hardware can easily switch over. So it sounds like what you're saying is um, having some variation where uh, at least the specialized hardware has it can't work on on a different chain will protect some of those smaller chains on at least some level. Yeah, and um, this kind of was the uh, justification for the creation of Litecoin back in the day. Um, and it was, it's basically a, a fairly important decision. It's a critical decision for a proof of work chain. And we now know that there are manufacturers of chips that have um, taken Ethereum's algorithm and optimized it for hardware. And, um, that required several millions of dollars of investment, and it, there are people who have invested in this hardware in order to mine Ethereum. And, I mean, this has already happened. It's, it's past tense. So the question is, should the engineers change the algorithm to undo all of the advantages by these uh, chip manufacturers and reset the competitiveness uh, to favor people who have graphics cards. The reason that people right. prefer graphics cards over specialized hardware is because graphics cards have a much larger market segment than pure cryptocurrency mining. And So what that would mean is that, that users could um, participate on an even playing field and, and not get overwhelmed by manufacturers who can just continue to produce more hardware and spin it up and and kind of take over the production of currency in the in the network yes and the funny thing is is that users will always be at a disadvantage because of economies of scale but what they won't be at a disadvantage of is access to distribution um, because hardware manufacturers like nvidia even though they're concentrated in um, am Basically, it's a duopoly. Um, but what they don't have is the um, a potentially malicious actor can't capture that entire market if their intention is solely to uh, compromise a cryptocurrency network. Because the market itself and the use cases themselves um, far outreach the uh limited interests of a specialized chip manufacturer. 
Hmm. So it it basically it democratizes access, but I mean, people who do mining professionally will always have an advantage because of efficiency gains and economies of scale and better engineering that they put into it. Um, but yeah, it's and either either way, I mean, it's just kicking the can down the road, right? Like if you're going to update the algorithm every time there's a new ASIC. Uh, you know, you're. It's it's a lot of effort for for potentially not so much gain. Given that we really should be moving toward a more scalable blockchain, so that when we have we we won't get um, run into issues when the next crypto kitties boom or some <laughs> other thing uh, happens. So. Um, I think fo- focusing the effort ultimately on advancing the progress of the core platform rather than trying to do this this cat and mouse trade with manufacturers is probably um, a better way forward, at least in my view. And uh, ultimately, like you're saying, there's there's always going to be economies of scale for um, for folks that that are trying to out uh, that are going to out- try to outcompete, but we. We do want to preserve the um, distribution of nodes so that you know people have an incentive to 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 have a home uh, node for Ethereum and to have you know so we can have thousands of them and they're not all concentrated in data centers somewhere. Um, so I can see both sides of the argument, but um, definitely want to move forward as quickly as we can on on uh, getting the strongest platform uh, that we can for Ethereum rather than just making. Uh, hashing algorithm changes. And I think that's kind of been the most interesting thing watching the programmable proof of work uh, debate is that a very large number of people just don't care. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's really funny because it's um, very critical for the Mm. platform that is. But I'm actually in the camp in which it doesn't interest me because one, I don't mind. And uh, two, I am also forward-looking and more anticipating what is to come um, than... But at the same time, it is one of those things that um, has shown that the Ethereum community has a lot of trouble coming to rough consensus when when there are opposing interests. So it's easy to make difficult decisions if... Um, if there's a, an expiry date, right? If there's a hard cutoff in which that decision needs to be made, then the important discussions will be made and um, a decision can eventually be concluded. But when there is no fire burning, I think the Ethereum community has a really difficult time, um, mainly because of its very informal um governance process in which Mm. it doesn't come to a decision it kind of it doesn't come to contentious decisions i should say that which is really interesting from like an academic perspective because they field like a lot of ideas and potential use cases and they experiment with um new possibilities within research but Um, For very pragmatic reasons, for example, there's two obvious camps. There's one that wants to keep mining with their GPUs, and then there's others that have spent millions of dollars and have built ASICs machines. And getting an actual pulse of a community that that doesn't actually have uh, an institution that can actually coordinate um, and move the entire body. So it's as if like there's no way to move the head of Ethereum so that the rest of the body can follow. And <laughs> Vitalik actually basically says that it's uh, he believes that the uh, community is able to come to um, its own decisions and that he's worried about other research. And it's weird that like people actually are calling to onto him as like the leader that's able to break a tie when we don't know if it's a tie <laughs> because we have no idea to measure the actual sentiment. 
and yeah we just we just know there are voices right. on either side and, yeah and they may both be loud but we don't know ultimately um how much of the community is on one side or the other and right and um, the yeah. and there's so much money here at stake that the loudness quote unquote of how like up in arms a community could be could be uh directly proportional to their own immediate financial interest I mean, yeah, or it could be a, a, an, an AI algorithm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's true. And I, I honestly can't believe that there is a large number of people against programmatic, uh, programmatic proof of work because um, implementing the code change, it's a free and open source software. So anyone can actually implement, uh, change the algorithm and propose it. Someone already has. They're like, yeah, I built this, and we spent more time talking about it than actually building it and <laughs> testing whether or not it's a good idea. And that's exactly what a open source software community should do, right? Like, test it, see if it works. I think there's reason to consider it. But again, but it's yeah, really hard not, to come to a, a hard of... conclusion. Yeah, because <laughs> there's not, to your point, that's a very good, it's a well-made point that um, it's not critical for anything that's immediately going on. There's no, there's no um, hard due date. There's no, um, you know, change that's going to happen if we if we leave this alone. Um, but things like Ethereum 2.0, there's a lot of pressure to get that done, and everybody feels it. I think, mm-hmm. and um, and and with other other changes that are tied to, um, like the uh, the more recent change around the uh the the wall of uh uh, what was it where the ethereum minting um got uh, modified or we Mm -hmm. the the the, we had a third inning i think it was called (laughs) it Uh went from four to three uh yeah exactly and and that that was a a hard deadline and, and caused a lot of pain around getting getting the release done and we found some bugs later uh, in the process. And, um, but yeah, I think it's a, it's a well-made point and we'll, we'll, I'm sure there are a lot of other areas where, um, changes could be made, but there's just not, uh, a a strong push on, on enough, uh, with, with one side to, to make it actually happen. Yeah. It, it also shows that, um, a community that is open to, uh, input from so many different parts, um, by its very nature in being so openly democratic. A really good analogy, I think, would be um, Occupy Wall Street, for example. If you ever watched how they... um, I was in Europe at the time, so I wasn't able to participate, but um, I found it very interesting how they could have open meetings without sound amplification in which they were able to actually get to uh, a rough, uh, near-unanimous consensus in which they Mm -hmm. gave everyone the opportunity to speak up against any proposal. Um, It's also worth noting that that devolved. It worked at first, but it also did very much devolve. And uh, yeah. people got very frustrated with its ability to make decisions. A lot of them just fractured into smaller uh, groups of like-minded individuals. Um, but while they were all like sitting there and they were able to hold the meetings and they listened to people's concerns and they would address it, um, they were able to work through the problems. But I could only imagine like that kind of global town hall in a GitHub repo in which you're discussing and it's pseudo anonymous. So you can't tell whether it's a new concern or someone raising a pre-existing concern. And then you add financial incentives. (laughs) Yes. So yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to see how on-chain governance is perfectly, or sorry, without on-chain governance, you can get a ton of fairness in the outcomes, but um, it's, uh, you know, I think it'll, it'll go on one side or the other, depending on the situation. And, um, e- either way that the, like you, you, you're saying in the Occupy Wall Street example, 
smaller groups can uh, fork off in the case of this this uh, code base and uh, the Ethereum platform if they wish to, if they don't agree, and that's happened in the past, and and uh, you know it can happen in the future. So there's a lot of incentive for the group to get to uh, a high level of consensus, uh, even if it's hard to actually see where people fall um, on a particular issue. It's easy to do when it's in development. It's nearly impossible to do when it's in production. <laughs> right. So like that, that's the other part of it. Cause if you don't end up like falling in line with the rest of the group, the concept of forking off has way too many costs associated with it. Right. Cause the idea of yeah. building your own community, having people accepting your chain, um, just compare Ethereum classic to Ethereum the cost right. getting to production is 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 huge it's not like you can have two outcomes that are equivalent it's right. like the winner end up, ends up being the winner most of the time right um and so, you got to yeah. realize that like to make a principled stand on for example like code is law there was a bug we should all just live with it that principle stand cost the ethereum classic community like millions and millions and millions of dollars and not to mention basically yeah it, it, it was the principled stand uh is admirable because you got to respect someone who basically like walks the talk but at the same time it's definitely a warning sign for other people yeah it, it would be interesting to know if uh we can't replay history and do it over again, but um, <laughs> if we, if the Ethereum community had decided not to roll back the um, the DAO change that chain that that uh, caused the or created the rift in the community that resulted in Ethereum Classic, if if we if we had not rolled that back and given back people their money that they mm-hmm. lost from the hack, uh, I wonder if there would have been a fork or if people would have just moved on <laughs> could you imagine um, going to proof of stake chain where you know 15 percent of existing holdings is owned by someone who's malicious to the network yeah i mean that, that would that would blow <laughs> yeah. yeah it'd be like a one in eight chance of someone screwing you over yeah every totally. block yeah uh, like <laughs> But yeah, yeah, I mean, it's just... not that simple because then they would get slashed and the slashing would result in them losing stake quickly if they were actually to be malicious. But it would just be very weird knowing that there was someone who was antagonist to the actual... I mean, I can't actually say that the DAO hacker is, was malicious or antagonistic to Ethereum, Honestly, no. They just they just ex- they they exploited a very vulnerable smart contract and yep. they won. Um, yeah, they so created a new class of vulnerabilities, and I mean, I still don't think he deserves. They didn't, they didn't hack Ethereum. Of <laughs> all ether yeah. for that, but um, yeah, and and in particular to your point about proof of stake, you know, they have voting rights with those with those ether uh, if it was on, on a proof of stake system. So it's even yeah. higher risk there. And if there was governance um, attached to it, then he could vote to keep his own coins after he'd stolen them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it'll it'll be interesting to see if that kind of thing plays out on, on some of the other chains. But um, so it's all all very interesting. Now on the on the application side of things. Um, there's a couple cool projects that we should talk about. One is this uh, Moloch DAO, which is um, my understanding. You should go into more detail. Is the that it's a, a way to to finance public goods, and, and that's a super interesting thing. It's got um, three hundred fifty thousand dollars in ether locked up in it now. But how how does this actually work in practice? So I haven't looked over their code yet. Instead, I was going to use this opportunity to kind of like advertise for uh donations for the um the project itself but uh DAOs essentially work as um on-chain governance that you could opt into right so um it always requires like looking into the exact details of how the smart contract works but from what i've understood and i um 
This is a project that was proposed amongst other people by Amin, um, the lead developer from Spank Chain, founder of Spank Chain, which has been putting out a lot of good work. And um, the concept behind it makes a lot of sense. And it's the idea that um, people who build public goods on a public blockchain should be incentivized to work on that blockchain as opposed to finding a way to monetize their work. So this is like if if you were developing an implementation of Ethereum 2.0 and you're a team that, like Prismatic, I think, uh, one of the teams that's building an implementation for Ethereum 2.0, they had to get funding from somebody to to do this. They were they were doing it with limited funding and um, but it's not a profitable endeavor necessarily just to build a client application for Ethereum, although everybody gets the benefit. So um, that's actually, actually that's actually hilarious that you brought up Prismatic because first they received um, some Ethereum Foundation grants and then they received some more Ethereum Foundation grants. And then one of their founders was saying like, hey, we would love to make progress faster, but we still have our day jobs because there's no way to actually like turn this into a business or monetize it. And uh, Vitalik gave them a thousand ether on that Twitter. (laughs) And literally his tag was still Vitalik non-giver of ETH in quotes. (laughs) That was the only time it happened. So people don't pester him and ask him for a million dollars in cash (laughs) um but essentially yeah it's one of uh it's this weird ecosystem in which we can create a digital representation of value that um, people can trade for money but the question is how do you create that digital representation of value most people mm-hmm. create ERC-20 tokens and try to uh, create a little fiefdom in order to have uh, Ether that they could ex- then exchange, pay people salaries, but as a result, they have to create their own network, which means that they have to capture value somehow, right? So if everyone is busy trying to capture value, then the basic things that everyone needs to do ends up having a weird kind of tacked on um, business model that might not necessarily need to be there. And there's a right. there's a massive um, group of projects, like there's several ways to finance them, right? If it's something that one specific um, group needs, right? If it's a company, then you can use something like a bounty, and uh, you can put a bounty and then someone could help uh, help you with the work that um, they might want to do or they'd be willing to do for less money than it is worth in terms of the headaches that it causes you to do internally. Um, but the alternative is that if it's something that everyone communally agrees upon and you need a larger uh, investment in order to be able to, like, create and maintain, uh, for example, documentation for um, a specific part of uh, the network, right? Mm-hmm. And no one has stepped up and done it during their free time because it's deeply complicated. And there needs to be like a full-time writer to explain exactly how a beacon chain and a POS chain interact in the exact protocol, right? Like, that is a highly yeah, specialized nobody. project that if if one of the Ethereum fiefdoms, right, um, that has an ERC-20 decides to fund, it's kind of like an altruistic donation towards the community in which they're doing it. But if it, you can't always rely on the Ethereum Foundation because institutionally they have blind spots. So you want to have like a representation of the things that you need, right? And like documentation is a really good example because the documentation about uh, two years ago was a lot worse. (laughs) And then people started stepping up and filling in and there started being grants, given out and they started employing the people who were writing the documentation full-time as well so Mm. 
these types of things, it's like, how do you actually represent the community's interest on things that are needed by everyone? And a DAO is a pretty good idea on how to, uh, how to do it. Um, and this is yeah, without looking into like how they have votes and how, um, like whether the votes are weighted based on how much coins you donate or things like that. I haven't looked into that because those details definitely matter, but it's a very good idea to at least start the discussion of representing what you need from the community as well. Yeah. I mean, ultimately it's still, it's still a charity thing and, uh, you know, there has to be, uh, enough people who need something, but don't want to build it themselves to come together and, uh, put it, put that, that their money into a fund where, um, where people can vote and release that to the person who builds it. And, um, and in that way you can kind of pool your resources. So if you really feel like as a developer, you need that documentation, you can say, all right, I'll put 10 bucks towards somebody who fixes this. It'll, it'll help, uh, my future, uh, quality of life as a developer. And then if enough people do that, you might get get that fund to a point where, where somebody's like, oh, I'll, I'll take that bounty. Let's, let's build some documentation. So, um, cool to see that there's work being done on this and, you know, it, it, it's got a considerable amount of money in the, in the, uh, fun so far for Moloch DAO, but uh, it's it's just uh, love to see these these kinds of projects that uh, are trying to um, improve the basic functionality of the of the platform. Right. Um, and so now now we've got the another exciting kind of interesting project is the XDI uh, burner wallet. So. I, I'm not super familiar with this, but on a, uh, what I'm understanding is that there's a, 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 a really easy UX now for user experience and, and user interface for uh, transferring Ethereum and, and via stablecoin. Um, so would love to, to, you know, this has been a, a big blocker for uh, a lot of applications is how do you onboard users into this uh private key, public key model, and, you know, you've got MetaMask and all this other crazy stuff that you have to install just to just to be working with crypto. So um, anything we can do to make that easier is great. And it sounds like the XDAI folks have, have come a long way with that. Yeah, there was um, Austin Griffith um, basically created a mobile front end that you would basically access a website and it would store a public-private key pair in the cookies of your mobile browser. It's called a burner wallet because you're not supposed to have a lot of funds there. It's ephemeral, essentially. It's enough for you to get some kind of token um, at a conference and then when you get home, then transfer it to a hardware wallet. But it's basically to reduce the onboard friction as much as possible. Um, and I think it's done a really good job and definitely inspires kind of the thinking behind um, answering the question of how do people actually want to interact with this? And um, the technical implementation is actually like a lot more complicated, but the decisions that he makes um, have a lot of really interesting insights. For example, um, it use, it's built on top of something called XDAI. XDAI is uh, POA Network's um, DAI-denominated sidechain. So you deposit DAI into a bridge contract with POA Network, and then it transfers you over into a sidechain, which is a proof of authority blockchain, and it has a five second block time, and the currency, the underlying currency is DAI. So the same way you would have Ether, you have DAI. You don't have to make a conversion inside of your head being like, okay, how much is this in dollars? Um, no, like you have one XDAI token that's $1 equivalent that you could cash out onto main chain. And um, that's actually really interesting, um, first of all, because it's a scaling solution. 
And um, in addition to that, it's also, it reduces the cognitive load of being able to understand and interact with it. So they um, did a pretty big rollout in Eth Denver, and I spoke with people um, who actually tried it out and they loved it. And they just had a really simple idea. They said, why don't we pay food trucks with XDAI tokens? And they had a nice sandboxed environment in which they were able to uh, move about $40,000 for fractions of a cent in total transaction costs. And basically all of the vendors uh, who were running food trucks for the event were able to cash out their their XDAI and get paid. And the onboarding process basically for people was to get a, a hardware token. And uh, I think they called it like a Buffacon, Buffacon? Anyways, um, a buffalo and a unicorn in one. And it's on like a physical token. And they that's created. They scan the QR code <laughs> on the back of that physical token. And it loads $10 into their browser. And that's what they use to pay for food at the event. Cause, uh, and then you would go to a food truck and you would uh, scan and make your purchases. And then you'd be able to uh, basically, yeah. you, you basically keep a, an account. And the entire thing is blockchain, but almost none of those transactions ever touch the Ethereum blockchain, despite the fact that it's entirely built on the EVM (laughs) with Ethereum public-private key pairs. It's just everything is abstracted. It's a layer above. It's fast. Um, It's easy. And I think the the most intuitive aspect is that, like, the cognitive load for a user is uh, almost nil in the fact that they see how much money they have in a mobile wallet, and that mobile wallet is just running in their browser. but yeah, I, I thought that was fascinating, and uh, it showed really good results. And I'm I, as soon as I saw it, I was wondering like, oh, is this the future of onboarding? <laughs> is uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting and uh, clearly really valuable to be able to have that kind of speed to to be able to um, have a simpler onboarding process to. Um, to be able to do it in a, a, a stable coin format. So um, there is already, uh, there are already dApps that are being built. There's a, uh, a prediction market that, that is now um, going live on the XDAI sidechain. Um, so making it easier to onboard people into a user experience for a dApp is, is uh, really interesting. And um, we'll see how this develops and ultimately it being uh, built on top of Ethereum is, is, is a good thing for the whole community. And uh, uh, it's, it's great to see this kind of user experience 2.0 for, for crypto start to take hold. Uh, it's been a big sticky point in the last year or two of like, how do we get a killer app if, uh, if people can't really use it without going through an hour plus long process, have to deal with these weird numbers uh, of, of uh, of tokens that that don't really correspond to, to dollars and it's highly highly volatile so um it's cool to see to see this stuff coming through yeah it's the first time i saw it i'm like that's not safe <laughs> was, that was my first reaction i'm like i don't even have crypto on an app on my phone because i don't trust the security practices that i have with connecting my phone to mobile networks <laughs> like yeah, and... yeah well, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure some of the newer folks are going to have fewer of those concerns they're just going to trust <laughs> it out of the box but those of us have been around for a while uh you know we're, we're going to be a little bit more cautious but yeah uh, but i think the the added benefit for having uh, more circulation and more usability is actually worth the risk and the trade-off like I wouldn't necessarily be devastated if like I get robbed of uh, ten or twenty dollars out of my wallet um, in like 
in the benefit of me being able to use crypto like nearly every day in daily transactions, I wouldn't mind the risk of losing um, what I would have in my wallet. It's as if yeah, like keeping, I left my wallet your... in an Uber. It That's kind <laughs> of like the equivalent of the risk. Like, yeah, carrying cash does have the risk of losing it. <laughs> yep, there's, there's always, there's always a risk involved. So yeah. Um, and, and, and in any case, it's, it's cool to see these developments and, uh, I'm sure for our next episode, we're going to have uh, even more to share. But, uh, you know, I'm really excited about um, chatting through this stuff as always and looking forward to our our, our next show. And, um, of course, we want to always thank our audience and uh, the the great team that we have over at the Bitcoin Podcast Network and uh, look forward to hearing from from the audience. Uh, come come chat with us on, on Twitter. Come join the Slack channel for the Bitcoin Podcast Network. And uh, until next time, any, anything else to add, uh, Lucian? Nope. Cool. <laughs> uh, See ya. Chat until soon. next time. Have a great one.